you know, I need to find a way to sell my work. Like maybe I should start making paintings on the side, you know? I've heard people say yeah, that too. Yeah, there's a yeah, feedback loop that's that going too. right back to the source with this. Well, because right, like these cheerful, pretty paintings look really great on Instagram. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, the fall art season is now fully in motion. We've had a big round of fairs in New York and in Seoul, and galleries and museums all over the world have rolled out some of their big offerings of the year. And we are back again for our monthly chat cast to talk about some of the topics that have been animating the art discussion. Today, we are going to talk about three things, about why painting is suddenly achieving a state of total dominance in the art galleries, about the latest developments around the spectacular 86 million criminal scheme associated with the former art dealer, Inigo Philbrick, and about the case of the artist who tried to take $84,000 from a Danish museum and call it art. Here with me today to talk is Kate Brown, our European editor, based in Berlin. Hi, Kate. Hey, Ben. And Katya Kazakina, our art market reporter and esteemed columnist behind the Art Detective column here in New York. Hi, Katya. Hi, Ben. So before we got rolling, because the fall art season has opened, I thought I'd just start by asking you, have you guys seen anything you liked so far? Are you looking forward to anything that's happening soon? Kate? Yeah, well, we just had Berlin Art Week here, which is not exactly a market event. But that being said, Gallery Week in Berlin did take over a whole hotel and all the galleries presented a bunch of different works. So it was a very busy week uh, at the beginning of September and everyone was chasing all over the city. A little too big, actually. So I'm actually excited to catch up on all the things I haven't seen yet. Like there's a beautiful or I've heard it's beautiful Edward Monk show at the Berlin Gallery, which is, you know, just around the corner from my house, but I haven't made it. So yeah, it's a long list. The paradox of being an art reporter is that the actual writing about art takes you away from seeing the art. <laughs> yeah, it's ironic for sure. Katya, what about you? Anything on your radar? Anything you're looking forward to or have seen? There's so much. You know, as you mentioned, in New York, we already had like a whole week of insanity with art fairs. But my personal favorite non-market event is the opening of Manet Degas show at the Met. I think it's going to be a blockbuster show. I mean, no question about it. A riveting, riveting exhibition. One of very rare moments. And for me, you know, you guys, we see so much art. Have you seen it yet? I did see it. Oh, I'm so jealous. I got into the reception for the opening. There were like probably five museum directors milling around from all around town. But the paintings really are absolutely spectacular. And for the first time ever... Manet's Olympia and a group of several other paintings are coming to New York from Musée d'Arsay from Paris. Man, that girl, oof, just <laughs> sizzling. It's such a terrific painting. Of course, I've seen it, but, you know, seeing it at the Met and in that really interesting juxtaposition of Manet and Degas, who were born two years apart and they were in the same circles. They knew each other. They were sort of friends, rivals, and I think they were frenemies, but I didn't realize, but Degas was a major collector of Manet and after Manet's death assembled like 80 works. I don't want to have many spoilers here, but it's absolutely terrific. And kind of, I almost feel like, Ben, you should have a whole podcast just on that show. Maybe we will. We should. I mean, I'm very excited about myself. I like the idea of a five museum director opening 
for a show being like a five alarm fire. You know, it's like, this is a big event. This was incredible. And it's not the press preview. It's the kind of celebration. It was jammed, like subway in New York, peak hour. It was just so extraordinary. I really would love to discuss it with you when you see it. I will make sure that that happens. As usual in New York, there's way too much to do. I haven't seen the Ruth Asawa show at the Whitney. I um, haven't seen the Ed Ruscha show at MoMA. And I'm really looking forward to at the Guggenheim. There's uh, only the young experimental art in Korea, 1960s, 1970s. That's on my wavelength of interest. I'm going to get to them all. But I do have to say, like, there's also, you know, the Frick also last week opened a small exhibition of Barclay Hendricks. They removed right. all the Gainsboroughs from the fourth floor and relocated them. And instead they put this group of paintings from the late 60s through their early 80s by Barclay Hendricks, who maybe yeah, an awesome the artist, first yeah. Black artist in that context. And it's terrific. Already we're talking about painting and the surplus of great painting in New York right now. There's also a surplus of mediocre painting in New York, which brings me to the first item on our agenda, which is based on a little item in my monthly column, which I write a monthly column called What I'm Looking At, which is a digest of art reviews and stray thoughts for the month. And this month, one of the things I've been meaning to comment on is that painting seems to be everywhere. Painting is always everywhere. Of course, it's like the er gallery art. But it really has seemed to me for a little while that there's just an unusual lack of variety in the galleries, that every gallery in New York I go into, dollars to donuts, it'll be a painting show. And I stopped by the Armory show earlier in September and was really struck by just how it was all painting. You know, painting is very saleable art, but it seemed to me that not that long ago, art fairs were offering a more varied diet in terms of what was on show. So this really struck me. This is really more of a conversation starter than a fully formed story. But it's an item from my column that has gotten a lot of comment. And I was wondering what you two thought about it. You, Katya, as someone who's reported on the art fairs and might have thoughts about what this means from a market point of view. And Kate, you were just at Berlin Gallery Weekend. If it's at all the same, you know, Berlin has this rep for being more experimental, less market-driven space. So maybe this is a New York thing. What do you guys think? I mean, I think it's a pretty international thing that tracks with the global art market. I mean, it follows a pretty simple calculus of supply and demand for me. Like, And I'm curious what Katya has to say about this, because, you know, Katya, you're speaking to so many collectors. When I see a lot of paintings at an art fair, I don't necessarily blame the dealers or even the art fairs. I just think about the demand that's being struck by what collectors are looking for. And I think galleries are just going to show what they think they can sell. So to me, it just maybe shows that there's a more conservative buying atmosphere or maybe a more conservative collecting environment than before. I'm not sure if there's any kind of substance to that. I'd be curious what you think, Katya. I think that it did strike me that there is a lot of painting, I agree, at the Armory Show. There were a few neon signs or sculptures. Neon signs. I love that. Neon signs is like another art fair <laughs> classic, yeah. right? It's, but even those like... were in short supply. I saw one. <laughs> I'm sure there were more than one. I saw one Tracy Emin, I think, and it wasn't the most coveted saying, and it wasn't pink, which seemed <laughs> weird, right? After the summer of Barbie, you really ought to get like a pink 
Neon by Tracy Emin. Anyway, no, but <laughs> I'm not so much surprised that there's always a lot of painting at the fairs, you know, in particular because obviously paintings are easier to transport, right? And we know that shipping costs are through the roof. There were a lot of international galleries, obviously easier to ship a creative paintings than like a heavy sculpture. I also, it was kind of interesting what kind of painting there was, right? Mm. And to my eye, there is a little bit of a shift and the painting is still decidedly figurative overall, like we're sort of painting with broad brushstrokes here, right? Obviously, but, you know, <laughs> definitely a lot of figuration, but perhaps less portraiture than we've seen since the pandemic, a lot less perhaps black portraiture that has been very dominant. I would say since the mm -hmm. pandemic, sure. but I saw a lot of flowers and landscapes. I don't know. Do people want to feel good? Do dealers think that, you know, there's so much anxiety out there for all these different reasons that we write about incessantly, you know, interest rates rising, the war in Ukraine, you know, the coming election in the U.S. I mean, there are so many reasons to be anxious right now. So is that what dealers think is going to make collectors pull the trigger because it's going to just look pretty on the wall and it's going to make everybody feel good? But there was just so many flowers. And at first I thought that was crazy. I was like, somebody asked me like, what do you think? I'm like, a lot of flowers. And then we're like, here it is, here it is. I'm just standing, you know, in the center of this, one of these court arrangements of galleries, like all the top walls, all the front walls were covered. Yeah, this is already clarifying some of my thoughts. I guess two things. Yeah, one, maybe it is, because there is always a lot of painting and, and I love painting. And we're just talking about, you know, Barclay Hendricks and Manet and all the great, historical painting there is out there but yeah maybe there is something about it's a lot of colorful semi-figurative painting that has sort of um, a slight critical dimension or some kind of gimmick but is sort of cheerful in appearance or something like that that's the overall vibe i get maybe the moment of like looming recession is not really conducive to experimental trends popping up could that have something to do with it as well you said that to begin with kate and Kate, you implied this or were saying this and maybe it's obvious to us but it might not be obvious to everybody listening that yeah i just immediately read this as as a kind of conservative vibe that's what i find kind of funny about it is that it is all this happy painting or painting that is happy in color and it immediately reads to me as kind of a symptom of an underlying kind of low level panic or a flight to something that has a easy pitch the second thing i was going to say is that maybe it's not that painting is dominant, that is what's really going on, is like the shifting of the weighting of the values. Like, it seems like there might be less difficult stuff or weird stuff. It wasn't that long ago, you know, when uh, Maurizio Catalan was doing the banana tape to the wall piece, which, say what you will about it, as a gesture, when he put the banana up at Art Basel Miami Beach, it seemed to suggest a kind of level of social excitement around the fair and just foment and buzz. As far as I understand, I know that Art Basel has some of the most vetted art fair applications. You really have to have a strong booth proposal to get into those fairs. And sometimes you'll be sending them back and forth with the fair to like get them approved. And I wonder if there's also something to like a changing power dynamic. I'd be curious what you think about this, Katya, between the galleries and the art fairs, you know, the galleries have a little bit more say about being like, no, we're just gonna bring a bunch of paintings we wanna sell. And the fairs don't really have much of a say against it, even if they wanted to. 
And, you know, I think Basel mm. remains the exception to that rule. Well, a couple of things. One is then, of course, Maurizio Catalan's piece, it wasn't long ago, but it might have been like a century ago because it was before yeah. the pandemic and everything is different. So I think that that really illustrates the shift, right? Just four years ago, perhaps, right? Four years ago. Something like that, yeah. Otherwise, what's interesting, what I noticed about galleries that before I feel like to get into one of these fairs, you had to be a gallery in a very traditional sense. And I think since the pandemic, because galleries did come under duress for a period of time, and we have seen a lot of closings, and because of our transition to the digital space, but I noticed that there are now galleries that don't necessarily function as traditional galleries. For example, they may not be open five days a week, or they may be more of a private gallery spaces that do get into a lot of fairs. You know, I'm not saying they shouldn't be there or should, but I'm just noticing that places that are somewhat different and maybe less traditional. And in terms of the program, what they bring, I always wonder about it because I think that obviously the program is vetted, but I feel like there is still quite a bit of flexibility for galleries, what they can bring. Ultimately, not perhaps for the unlimited section, right, at Art Basel, or there was um, a focus section at the Armory, which consisted of very large sculptures. But overall, maybe they do have a little bit more flexibility in terms of the material they can bring and can sell. Two things that I'm thinking based on what you guys are saying. One is it might have something to do with fairs. But like I say, I mean, I've been thinking this in the art gallery context for a little while. I've just been thinking that there just seems to be less species diversity. The programs are more predictable. It wasn't something I went looking for. It just sort of the thought appeared to me as I kind of made the rounds. And so I don't think it's just the fairs. It's definitely some kind of calculation. And then I think it's interesting what you're saying, Katya. It's making me think regarding the pandemic, because I was reading your Armory Show report. Those lowly souls among us who don't have a lot of disposable art buying capital might not have felt, but that a lot of rich people during the pandemic were at home buying art for their homes. It's like a thing that people did during the shut-in period. And that really made a bit of a boom for the art market, but it also was all happening in this digital context. So suddenly now that we're talking, I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, what looks great on the digital screen is like two-dimensional work, you know, painting work. So maybe there is actually a little bit of a shift in tastes, one of these psychological shifts that we're just unpacking now that the pandemic period had on us, not even totally an economic anxiety thing. Maybe there is a shift towards two-dimensional work just to base the people who've been consuming stuff on the screen so much. 100%. That makes me think of when I was walking through the fairs in Basel in June, for example, you know, a dealer's on FaceTime trying to like scan the contours of some experimental sculpture for, you know, an art advisor, or a collector who's not there and trying to convey the depth and interests of a three-dimensional work like over FaceTime. Obviously, there's a challenge there. It's like an experimental dance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that that feeds back into the artist's studios, you know, like I was talking to a video artist who's doing quite well right now. And she was saying, you know, I need to find a way to sell my work. Like maybe I should start making paintings on the side, you know. I've heard people say yeah, that too. There's a yeah, feedback loop that's that going too. right back to the source with this. Well, because right, like these cheerful, pretty paintings look really great on Instagram, mm -hmm. on social media. Great. And that's where a lot of 
people that get discovered right now where you know a lot of commerce originates and also of course don't forget like just to add another layer here is that people were buying paintings like crazy during the pandemic wealthy people right and then we've seen like a whole new wave of investors come from asia from us as well you know and they began trading and these are new buyers they're not collectors again in the traditional sense and they're just buying art to speculate on it and then the flipping the speculative bubble was just getting bigger and bigger and that's definitely part of that too the painting well speaking of speculative bubbles and painting, I think maybe that's our cue to turn to the second item that we want to talk about today, which relates to your column this week, Katya, and has to do with something we've talked about on the podcast before, which is this scheme around the disgraced art dealer, Inigo Philbrook. So there is new news in that arena recently. Katya, what's been going on? So Inigo Philbrook was indicted last year and he's in jail. He's been in jail since 2020. Yeah for defrauding investors of $86 million worth of art by various schemes that involved selling more than 100% in shares. Speaking of art that no one ever saw, (laughs) that people don't see, (laughs) he was trading art that people didn't actually have on their walls. They were just investing in it. Definitely didn't have on the walls. And sadly, some of this art is still like sitting in a box somewhere because people are still fighting over who owns it. There's one painting by Rudolf Stengel, a very striking image of Pablo Picasso that is probably at Christie's somewhere. Meanwhile, investors from Europe, US are all fighting for it. Anyway, but what was new last week was that Inigo had a business partner in his operations, a guy named Robert Newland, and he was kind of like a financial advisor. That was his role. And he helped convince some investors to go in with Inigo and buy these paintings, including the one I just mentioned. And so he was sentenced last week to 20 months in prison and some other additional community work and stuff like that. But it was a very dramatic moment. You watched the sentence? No, you know, they didn't let the reporters be in the room. I think he was in the courtroom. I only listened to it, but it was incredibly dramatic because, of course, we write about it and there is a level of abstraction right that becomes a story you know sometimes you forget there are real people involved in real lives and you know this guy has young daughters and you know he lives in london i think he's a british citizen and so the judge recommended that he serves his prison sentence close to home in england it was really tough to see but i think that the judge and the authorities the prosecutors really wanted to send a signal to the art world that Even if you are facilitating in fraudulent activity in the art market, you can go to jail. Like It's not fun and games, and there are serious consequences to defrauding investors. In The Art Detective that came out this week, you were framing this story within a wave of other lawsuits that have been going on. Can you talk a bit about those? Because you were saying that there's been a ton, and there's been some in Europe as well, of course. One advisor described it as a tsunami of lawsuits, which, of course, made the headline. (laughs) Because how could you not put a tsunami of lawsuits in the headline, right? 
So, yeah, so it really feels like every week there is a headline. It really does. It really does, right? Like we report so many of them. Eileen Kinsella covers them in great depth. And so what's interesting, I guess, what struck me was that not just that there are a lot of lawsuits, which is noteworthy, but also who is suing who and what it kind of says about the zeitgeist, right? And I think like it is connected to what we've been talking about aesthetically, right, to the proliferation of pretty paintings. But here, from a different angle, for example, one of the biggest lawsuits this fall and the summer was charges against Lisa Schiff, an art advisor. It started with two of her longtime collector clients, you know, alleging that she sold the work, didn't pay, you know, the same kind of a thing, like a mini Ponzi scheme where, you know, something was sold, but the proceeds weren't distributed correctly. And then turns out that there is like a trail of similar situations from multiple clients. But you have very close relationship, right? A collector and an advisor who is supposedly helping them build a collection. Then another lawsuit was brought by Jeffrey Gibson, very prominent artist who's going to represent the U.S. in the upcoming Venice Biennale. Major career milestone. Yeah, there's a big show in New York right now. It's Sycamore Jenkins' new paintings. That's right. So he accuses his art dealer, Kavi Gupta, of owing him over $600,000 over the years that things were sold, but he wasn't paid. So that's an artist suing his art dealer. And final thing that also struck me was that the Orlando Museum of Art is suing its former director, who made uh, possible that disastrous exhibition of fake baskets. I didn't know that. That was taken down by the authorities. Those are just three. Oh, and I think you even mentioned in your piece that the employees or former employees of the restaurant that Gagosian co-owns are suing for alleged tips. unpaid tips. There's kind of a percolation of legal action, high and low. Sorry, in the tea world, which of course, Ben, you know a lot more about than I do, there are a whole bunch of lawsuits there. Oh yeah, there's the uh, Sotheby's Board Apes price-fixing lawsuit about how there's a class action lawsuit against the auction house for um, supposedly inflating the value of these ape JPEGs. Let's not forget the Wildenstein trial yeah. in Paris where, you know, there's a billion dollars of back taxes at stake. It is funny to think that these two things might be two halves of the same whole, you know, like interest rates go up a few points and suddenly all the paintings <laughs> look two points prettier and there are, you know, 200% more lawsuits as the money dries up. The point that stuck out to me from your column was this quote by a lawyer, I believe, who said, it's not that there are more disputes or problems that didn't exist before. It's that people are more willing to do it publicly. I wondered if you'd comment on that, because there's this recent underlying kind of economic story about the queasiness in the art market, which reflects larger economic queasiness. But then there's a kind of an interesting piece to it. It's like the evolution of the art market. That is, it's kind of more of an industrial space. That's how I'm reading. It's more business-like. And so it goes from a more genteel kind of profession. This is an evolution that's happened over decades now. But to one where the stakes are higher and the norms are different, particularly in the Filbert case, where, look, you're talking about I think in Eileen's reporting, she talks about how like he had no relationship with artists and people never saw the artworks. You were just selling shares and paintings. And obviously the norms of what it means to sell art 
change there. And that also might change the norms about like talking in public, suing people, going to court, airing your dirty laundry in public, because it's a different kind of business. Yes. And I think that was a really fascinating point that Laura made. Also, because there are so many investors in the art space right now, and these investors are used to a certain amount of, I guess, transparency. And also, if you have fraud and another asset class, lawsuits are much more prevalent there. And so they bring those values with them into the art space in a way like in the early 2000s, remember when the hedge fund collectors suddenly appeared as a class, as a group, and they brought in with them certain elements of their business activities, for example, like financing, right? Using art as a leverage to borrow against became a huge thing. So perhaps these lawsuits are also an indication of what the investors that are not coming from the art world are used to. And Kate, like you've heard these stories, I'm sure, before over the years. How many stories of artists not getting paid by dealers? It's kind of like a thing, a huge thing, unfortunately. Of course. And I think, you know, when you read Eileen's amazing report for the intelligence report that sort of shares the backstory about Inigo, I mean, because there's this like, we'll both be quiet for mutual benefit thing going on in all these deals. I mean, for a long time, a lot of these people were pursuing him quietly, quietly, quietly. And I think it just, you get to a point where you just exasperate and every type of email call threat has been made. I'm curious, Katya, like, do you think that this will cause a sea change? Like, will these lawsuits create any kind of new practices in the art market business at all? You know, it's an interesting question because already we've moved from the world of just the handshake deals to these long contracts. And if you see that all the paperwork attached to the complaints by, let's say, German investors in the Inigo Pilbrick case, there are a lot of contracts there. So that already has been a sea change in that regard. But ultimately, when you're able to sell fractions of works, that you've never seen, that investors don't have physical ownership of because it's sitting in a free port somewhere, you know, how enforceable it is. It's the Faustian bargain you kind of make, I guess, if you're going to do a shady deal. Yeah, you won't have much traction if it doesn't go your way. But what I thought was interesting was in the Newland court case, you'd mentioned that the judge also wanted to send a signal. You know, I was thinking about the Wildenstein case because that's a different litigation in the sense that actually the French state going after them now. There was a former wife that was going after the Wildensteins before. Yeah, this is a massive tax avoidance case, right? the biggest tax avoidance case in French history. There's been a lot of talk about lately and is just staggering. It's been going on for a while, but got reopened recently in this last month. It just seems like there's new attempts, perhaps, from states to sort of try to build some sort of regulation or, or claw back some money that's been sort of floating across borders in the art market for a while. Definitely. Also, what's interesting is that, and I just want to point it out, is that it's not that authorities don't know that this is happening in the art market, but perhaps the stakes haven't been that high for them to actually turn and allocate resources. The line that I've heard over the years was that, okay, who cares? It's just rich people screwing each other over. Like, who cares? Mm -hmm. Right. But now if the governments can recoup like a billion dollars and the governments are looking at the same financial picture as exactly. all of us as well. Yeah. Everybody needs money right yeah. now. 
And just to bring it back to something we talked about a second ago, I mean, I think that was another aspect of the pandemic era is that there was this sudden, well, to me, the NFT thing is the big one. So it's like the Bored Apes thing, as silly as it is, is a big deal. You know, one of the ways that I looked at the NFT boom was exactly that for like 10 years or more, there'd been all these spectacular headlines about rich people making a killing at the auction market. And that's not a market that most people can participate in. But this new technology comes along and literally is sold as like, oh, you just an ordinary Joe Schmo can make a killing. Democratization, finally, in the art world. You can democratize the opportunity to be scammed. <laughs> and that, that that's basically what happened during the Equal pandemic. And that has had real consequences for real people. It's real money. And that has created some kind of popular pressure that has fed into these conversations about cracking down on the art market as well. And with that, I think perhaps is our cue to talk about another art story that I don't know how to describe it, but it's definitely in the region of questions about scams, what we call a scam and, you know, the possible scam. Which is maybe uh, performance art. Conceptual art, yeah. <laughs> Artwork that pushes the line between conceptual performance art and scam. Kate, what is this? Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you guys what you think of this artwork <laughs> after, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> um, this Danish artist, Jens Hanning, got ordered by a Copenhagen court to repay money that's been decided that he owes to this museum in Denmark called the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art. This is a fallout from an art performance that he did in 2021 when he delivered two white canvases, speaking of painting, to the museum. But it was not the work that the museum thought they were getting. They had given him $84,000 in bills because they wanted him to make this work that was incorporating these dollar bills to speak about labor in the art world and in society at large. And he made this work called Take the Money and Run and Took the Money and delivered these <laughs> conceptual art paintings that have nothing on them. Yeah, so speaking of people clawing their money back in a courtroom, the museum has won this and he has to pay the money back, minus his expenses and the cost of delivering the artwork and all this, which is nice, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's caused a lot of debate and it made a lot of headlines as well. So was it a valuable work? Was it a good artwork? Should the museum have been okay with this? I mean, it's a subject that we can talk about. <laughs> what do you guys think? It's so funny because we're talking about scams in the art world and I'm so like weirdly more sympathetic to this guy than any of that. He became something in between like a folk hero in 2021 <laughs> when this came out and a perfect representation of what the public thinks conceptual art is mm. anyways, which is just a kind waste of, of money. Um, <laughs> waste of money. How yeah. is it really different from the banana? Marisa Catalan's banana. Is it very different? You know, that was my take on it. You know, every local news station in the world was doing like their last segment on this in 2021. I was like, if I were the museum, I'd be like, this is $80,000 well spent on publicity because <laughs> people around the world are suddenly talking about this art show about artists and labor at this tiny Danish museum. I mean, you can't pay for publicity like that. My joke about it was like, they should just do what everyone does with a blank space that has a lot of attention on it and just sell ads on the blank canvases that this artist turned back in and make their money back that way. Like a loss leader in a way. 
but the thing is, again, I think the dates are very important to our discussion is that was 2021. <laughs> this is 2023. Economic reality has changed a lot for a lot of people, the governments, individual collectors, artists, museums. And maybe something that did look okay in 2021, suddenly, you know, museums don't have vast budgets, right? And perhaps their budget is less. Maybe they do need that money back. Maybe it's material to them and that's why they're doing it. Who knows, you know? Real talk, I think it's a small museum. They probably do need the money. On the flip side, a serious issue that this work raises, you know, it was from a show about art and labor. And there is a case to be made that even though he legally was in breach of contract that he was raising a good conceptual point. Like one of the things he said is like, this work is going to cost me more to make than I, they're paying me to do it. And that is a real issue that a lot of people have talked about. And I think more than anything else, that's the issue that has been raised by this project or why it resonates more now, because people have been increasingly fed up with the idea of working for publicity from museums. Speaking personally, I have a family friend who got her big break at art show in the Pacific Northwest and went into a lot of personal debt to put the show up that she was still paying off years and years later. You know, this is an actual real material thing for artists. In hard numbers, I think it was that he had to pay $3,900 of his own money and got a $1,600 fee. So it didn't add up. And I do think that that's a really important point. You know, to go back to the Maurizio Catalan work, not that he's an example of an artist who's suffering for money, but when you make subversive commentary that's maybe edging towards institutional critique or trying to be a trickster, I think it's kind of key that the right people are in on the joke, you know, and I think that there potentially would have been a way to do this with the consent of the museum. And I was reading the New York Times coverage of it a little more closely, and the director of the museum was sort of down for it. They were sort of, I think, also shocked, or also kind of expecting that the money would be returned after the exhibition was over. So it was a gesture, but like that the money would come back in some form. There's artists that do this kind of like trickster work that doesn't actually bankrupt a museum. And I think that's the point. Nah, I think it would be ruined if people were in on the joke. I hate it. One of these stories, it sounds like something wacky was pulled off and it turns out everyone's in on the joke. The fact that no one was in on the joke, that makes the piece, don't you think? You're probably right, yeah. But I think they should have had a contract of some sort. Like, at least with parameters. Maybe that was the one to have a the contract. The artwork was that he breached a contract that they had. Oh, okay, There okay, was okay, a contract okay, and okay. he broke it and that was the artwork. So, I mean. We are in such trouble. Everyone's in trouble. Oh, oh, my God. God. That was supposed to be a funny part of our <laughs> I know, conversation. I know. What well, happened? Isn't that just the sign of the times that you start out talking about <laughs> something funny and your thoughts move off in another darker direction? That having been said, it's a great pleasure to talk to both of you. Kate, thank you for joining us on The Art Angle. That was a pleasure. And Katya, wonderful to pick your thoughts today. Oh my God, I had the best time. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcast. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thank you all for listening, and see you next week. Bye.